Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. I'm Nate Sager, and I just got a push alert stating I've been signed to play quarterback for the Denver Broncos. I'd better call my manager. Your manager says you should put your phone on airplane mode and do this podcast. Vera said that? In 2005, Governor General Mikhail Jean said the time of the two solitudes that for too long described the character of this country is past. The two solitudes refers to the lack of will to communicate between the Anglo and Francophone people in Canada, and it entered the lexicon via what is considered to be a great Canadian novel of the same name by Hugh McLennan. To what degree these solitudes exist is not the purpose of this show or this episode, but well into the 21st century, a new authorized biography about Montreal Canadiens' former captain and GM, Serge Savard, that was originally published in French and translated to English, can give those outside of Quebec a refreshing and insightful take from the inside of one solitude that we rarely get to see in Canadian sports books. Forever Canadien was released on October 21st, and it intricately explores the life and times of Savard, a Hockey Hall of Fame inducted defenseman who played with the Canadians, with the Canadians from 1966-67 to 1980-81, and then the Winnipeg Jets for two seasons before taking over as GM of the Habs from 83 to 95. It it begins by letting us travel back in time, to scenes right out of Rock Carrier's The Hockey Sweater. Rural post-war Quebec, young boys huddled around their parents' radio listening to Montreal Canadiens games, and then at the first chance they get, emulating Maurice Rocket Richard on outdoor rinks. Savard went from the small village of Abitibi, where his father owned a butter factory roughly 600 kilometers northwest of Montreal, to becoming a slick defenseman that won the Stanley Cup eight times as a player and two more as a GM in 86 and 93. Over his career, he was awarded the Conn Smythe Trophy as playoff MVP in 1968 and was number 81 on the Hockey News' list of the 100, 100 greatest hockey players. He also lists some of his greatest memories as representing Canada internationally at tournaments like the unforgettable 1972 Summit Series. Back to the solitudes for a moment. Let's think about Canadian sport, the Canadian sportsbook market, which is understandab understandably dominated by hockey books. What are some of the biographical books that have come across in our extensive reading history? I think of The Game by uh, Ken Dryden, The Great Defender by Larry Robinson, and before that, Robinson for the Defense as, uh, as books about Montreal Canadiens greats. But why not more from those like Savard um, that define the franchise and also the culture of the province? Here's to more books such as Forever Canadien that transcend the solitude into the national sphere. Yes, indeed. And now, since Sarah Chevard loves golf, uh, let us tee it up by saying, to back betray what Neil said, he is the sort of the clubhouse leader for the title of greatest player who was a successful NHL executive with Brendan Shanahan, Joe Sackick, and Steve Eiserman still out on the course, you know, poised to make a charge if they ever win a cup in, with their current organizations. Uh, Savard's life, I think, really affirms that idea of club and country that you hear about in soccer, where players you know, grow up in a team's academy system and the sport schedules are structured so they can go play for their national teams. Uh, hockey did have that former system before the draft when, when Serge was, was a boy. He was basically an integral part of the Canadians organization almost continuously when he joined one of their sponsored teams as a 15-year-old until he was you know, a middle-aged 50-year-old guy. 
working as their general manager uh, when hockey was becoming, you know, this global game. You know, the country part of that is very layered. You know, Savard's a proud Quebecer who was valuable on the ice for Canada when it was reestablishing itself in international hockey in the 70s, as it's often quoted in the 1972 Summit Series between Canada and the Soviet Union. Canada didn't have Bobby Orr because he couldn't play, but Team Canada won or tied all five games that Savard played in during that eight-game series, and it lost the three he missed. Not a coincidence. Now, being a Francophone sports star in Quebec, at least as it seems to our you know outsider Ontarian-looking-in perspective, sort of involves this uh, unique social contract. Quebec really sort of has the best parts of European and American sports models. Uh, the the European idea is sort of that there's really strong support, you know, the whole takes a village idea, you know, for young athletes is that, so they can go out and rep a region, a nation that maybe feels like it's not getting enough attention from, you know, the rest of the country. And Quebec's, and thusly, you know, Quebec's athletes, they get more early exposure, uh, you know, whether and whether they play one of the big four North American sports or they're in tennis or mixed martial arts or they do an Olympic sport. That translates into sort of a rock star celebrity status in the province because they've literally grown up and you know and sort of in front of the camera. Whereas I think in the rest of Canada, there's still the idea of was like, well, go out and prove it in the states, and then and then we'll be you know all over your stuff. And the trade-off for that is I you know they expect maybe an expectation to be a little bit more civic-minded, be a little closer to things that are outside of the sports silo. Uh, and Canton's narrative shows how Savard, you know, as the son of a small town mayor was really born more into that political life and the business life than a hockey life, and how that sort of laid the groundwork for him to earn his sobriquet of the senator. And as Alan Fotherham wrote, in Quebec, politics is a religion. In Ontario, it's a business. When Savard was playing on the great Canadians team's dirt in the 1960s and 1970s, you know, tumultuous times, a whole lot going on everywhere, but especially in Quebec. And then he was in general, the general manager again in the 90s when the sovereignty, you know, drumbeat was getting very loud. And while he, uh, you know, demurred from offers to run for political office, you can see in the book that, you know, being a prominent, you know, francophone player on the Canadians at that time, and then being the general manager was, well, really, you had to be a good politician. Now, sidebar, this book really brought home how uh, crazy thing. well, I don't, I don't really like to use the word crazy, but how wild things were in Quebec in 1995. Like, there's a gold mine awaiting someone who crafts, like, a coming-of-age story about a Montreal sports, young Montreal sports fan in 1995. Well, you have the following going on. Uh, you had the first time that an NHL lockout compressed the schedule, the first time in 45 years that the Canadians had a losing record and missed the Stanley Cup playoffs, you know, both of those, you know, dubious distinctions. Uh, baseball's Expos, you know, coming off the cancellation of the 1994 World Series d due to a player strike, dismantled the best team they ever had and moved uh, future Hall of Fame outfielder Larry Walker to Colorado, foreshadowing future events in the uh, sport of hockey because the Quebec Nordiques would soon after move to, move to Denver. And then in the fall, the Canadians' last season in the fabled Forum starts with Savard and Coach Jacques Demers being sacked just four games into the season. You know, to, you know, which knocked uh, you know news about the upcoming referendum off the front page for a few days. And then about six and a half weeks later, you know, the great goaltender Patrick Waugh quits the team in the middle of a game. 
and somewhere in that script you're going to have to find room for the biker war and and probably and probably a love story too a lot happening there you know maybe have to scrap the love story neil could be a documentary yeah your move ricardo troji uh have your people call the espn 30 for 30 people <laughs> now through savard's life and times you do sort of see the sweep of you know quebec's progress across the second half of the 20th century and he's you know as great defensemen are a presence in all of that you know even when maybe more bombastic personalities or flashier players you know draw the ears and the eyeballs i hope people for whom the montreal canadians you know 24 stanley cups are just a trivia answer you know pick this up to sort of understand the place the canadians held in all of canada's you know sporting consciousness because it's really unmatchless the only franchise i would really even use as a comparison for the canadians from about 1955 to 95 is what is the tv show the simpsons back in the 90s i don't think i'm making that connection too loosely or self-indulgently or or just because i happen to think that quebec homer is superior to dan castellanetta's original now i won't belabor you know the cult what the cultural import of both the animated comedy series and the canadians are because you know that's that ground has been well tilled I'll just say that both the Canadians at their peak and the Simpsons hit that entertainment Everest of massive popularity, critical praise, and winning. And they were, did it well being, you know, appealing to nostalgia, you know, constantly introducing new characters and always sort of staying fresh but being true to the original. You know, of course, the Simpsons is the allegory for the American dream. The Canadians have, at their peak were an allegory for Quebec nationalism. You know, this way to sort of avenge what went down on the plains of Abraham. It was an ethos. It was expressed by dialogue translated from Rick Salutin's play Les Canadiens. Like an army on ice, we march south every winter. We return in the spring the conquerors. Now, basketball's Los Angeles Lakers are the winningest North American sports franchise in the last half century but they're never going to beat that origin story. Now, the world sort of changed in a way that defies having such a juggernaut in sports or on television. There's just too many viewing options. But I mean, The Simpsons' influence from its peak era is lasting because it was subversive and it was super quotable during the last days of the analog era when there were only four American t TV networks. So that scarcity increased the odds of getting all these outstanding creatives in one writer's room making a TV show. Likewise, the Canadians of Serge Savard's vintage as a player seized on this incredible edge in demography due to the baby boom generation growing up before the NHL had a universal draft. So the Canadians had first crack at the best players in Quebec, and the Canadians' management carried that inside track on Quebecois hockey talent into the expansion era, something the Toronto Maple Leafs failed to do with players in Ontario. Number four, Bobby Orr. Yeah, how did the Leafs miss him? <laughs> now, to be to clear, what I'm not, you know, trying to minimize either the Simpsons or or the vintage uh, Canadians. I'm saying they were very good, and it's all about what they did with an edge that just no longer exists in our world. In their day, the Canadians inverted the cliche. They don't ask how; they ask how many. It was all about how they won so many cups by being what Mordecai Rickler called the most dashing and aesthetically pleasing team in hockey. And they probably had that title for a solid quarter century, at least within the NHL. And sort of close the loop on the uh, forced Simpsons comparison, they had a long plateau under Savard's command in the 80s and early 90s. 
And that long plateau, you know, involved the emergence of a direct challenger who entered the space that their, the Canadians' dynasty had created. That would, would be, of course, the Quebec Nordiques. Highway 2 in Alberta, now that was the road to the Stanley Cup for about eight years in the 80s and early 90s. But at that time, the Battle of Quebec, you know, pro might, I mean, you can't really compare the intensity of rivalries unless you're in one. I think someone point, it's been pointed out to me, but I think the Battle of Quebec crossed, you know, class and societal lines in just this, un, you know, unbelievable way. Because the Nordiques were at one end of the province, you know, sort of maybe embodying the, you know, one side of sort of a rural, working class, hyper-majority French side of Quebec. And the Canadians were the big city team for more polylingual Western Quebec, you know, you know, closer to Ontario. You know, Canton Savard detailed that there was a real battle between the franchises for who could, you know, draft and develop uh, Quebec players. And Savard was, you know, in the thick of all that. I mean, that era passed and, you know, very suddenly and the way that we get our sports and relate to our sports and our entertainment, you know, has changed, you know, radically in our lifetimes, Neil. Uh, you know, Ceslavie, Kesara, Sarah. <laughs> but Savard and Canton's book really uh, paints a portrait of a, a sports figure whose talent and his temperament really seem to just fit the time and place. Well said. Coming up, Serge Savard. And welcome back to Sports Lit, Neil Acharya and Nate Sager, and we're pleased to be joined by Mr. Serge Savard. Mr. Savard, uh, welcome to the program today. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, Mr. Savard, I want to first start by asking you, and uh, uh, before the interview started, we talked about golf. Um, you're a businessman, and I heard you recently bought a golf course in Terrebonne from Celine Dion. Is that correct? Well, uh, yes. My group... My group, uh, where I'm not alone in that company. Mm. Yeah, we just bought the uh, the 36 holes called Le Mirage uh, from Céline Dion. Uh, her husband passed away about four or five years ago, and he was the he was the one that was the golf nuts and that built this golf course. It's a wonderful place, and uh, and uh, I guess the price was right, and we decided to buy it. Um. Last week we had a uh, Rick Vive, a former Toronto Maple Leaf captain, on our program, and he we were joking with him about who's the best uh, Maple Leaf alumni golfer, and he said it was Gary Lehman. So while uh, we're on this topic, who's the best uh, Montreal Canadiens alumni golfer right now? Alumni, uh, uh, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, Guy <laughs> Um Oh, a person you have a long history with. So I guess I'll get right into the book. And my first question to you is, um, uh, obviously... Don't forget, oh, sorry, don't, go ahead. Don't forget, don't forget Lehman might, might be the, the best uh, <laughs> golfer. Uh, the best Canadians alumni. He won a Stanley Cup with Mo the Montreal Canadiens. Very, very true. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even think of that. Um, uh, I want to ask you... Um, uh, as a businessman, uh, I've heard you've wrote, written a book before, but what did you learn about the business of writing books through Forever Canadien? Well, uh, I, uh, I was, I've been asked almost every year to write a book about my life, my career, and uh, I said no all the time and uh, for the last 10 years. And, uh, and one day... Uh, 
one of my son Mark, he says, Dad, if you don't do it, I will do it. So, <laughs> so that was that was the click that I needed, and and uh, I decided to go ahead two years ago, and I published the French version last year and the English version uh, last about three weeks ago, and uh, it's a uh, I don't know, it's an experience that I was not looking for doing it and and uh, and while I, I when I start doing it I, I think I enjoy doing that I, I've been piling a lot of stuff over the years and never open up the boxes and and it's a long process when you decide to to start to write the book and go through your life and uh, and look at all the the, the past and the details and uh, your youth and uh, I thought it was a lot of fun, and uh, I wish everybody's do that once in their lifetime. It, it, it's been it's been a great experience for me. The uh, the decision to translate it was that when you started the process process with the author, uh, Mr. Catan, did you decide you were gonna translate it at, at some point, or did that decision come after it was released in French? No, no, no. It was uh, it was decided right away. At the beginning, but uh, I guess the publisher, maybe the publisher, didn't didn't know, didn't think that was going to be that that successful, mm-hmm. because I think we we sold uh, forty thousand copy in French, and and uh, I don't know, it's not my decision; it was the publisher decision. But but from day one, it was always inspected to 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 have it in both languages. And and Serge, uh, what did you really want to express about what your childhood was like growing up in Quebec in the 1950s? Well, I was born in '46 uh, in a small town called Landrienne, which is 400 miles northwest of Montreal. And people, young people today, won't realize that, but uh, we 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 had the television only in 1957, and 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 electricity came at my house when I was five years old. So, so I'm I'm a baby boomer, born in '46, the first January '46, and after the World War II, and it, it was a pretty 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 good uh, expansion, probably the greatest expansion in in our time was after the war and we saw uh you know we were happy we were happy uh, uh, as a youngsters and uh, i start you know hockey was not organized i start to uh, to skate uh, wherever we had ice and i did i did skate on ponds and on small river and and then we 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 had a rink not the rink but the we had an outdoor ice, uh, and uh, and our dream as a kid in the province of Quebec, our dream was to play for the Montreal Canadiens, and and I guess a, a young kid from Ontario, his dream was to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and that's just normal. And uh, at the age of around 15, uh, I was at college, and. Uh, I was a you know a good player at college, uh, and uh, I had an invitation to attend the training camp of the junior Canadians. And uh, starting there, I, I I thought I was dreaming, and uh, I thought I had a fair chance of making it. Uh, 
when they turned 15. So. Yeah, and, yep. and I, I was impressed by the part in the book where you said you sort of had to remind them about, hey, I'm I'm here and I, I'm a, I'm a I'm a good player. I can play on your team. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, my first year in Montreal when when I attended the training camp in those days, the training camps were pretty late. You know, it was a late late September, and I had to quit school to go to training camp, and after a month. Uh, a training camp they say well we'll keep you so I, I stayed in Montreal but they sent me to junior A team to four junior A team and I had a tough year the first year and being alone in the big city I finished my year in junior B and the following year I came back in September for the school because school started in the first week of September and uh, I called Cliff Fletcher who was working for the Montreal Canadiens at that time and I said, Cliff, I'm I'm in Montreal. I haven't received the invitation yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's uh, that's uh, that's the way it happened. And and I I I I played that year for DG Monarchs uh, at 16. And the, the coach was Alfie Harvey, the brother of Doug Harvey. And at Christmas, I made the All Star team. And uh, and at Christmas, at Cliff, they sent me a check. They reimbursed me my expenses that uh, that I had from coming coming in Montreal in September. That that's the way it happened. And the following year, I made the Junior Canadians. Nice, uh, Mr. Savard. I'm going to read you uh, a little passage from Larry Robinson's book that came out a few years ago called "The Great Defender." And then I'm going to ask you a question. So this is what he says about you. I was most fortunate to be paired with Serge Savard, and I can't say enough about him. I only became the player that I did because I got to play with Serge. I played seven years with him, and I made a lot of mistakes when we first started, but he always covered up for me. Serge had been a good rushing defenseman, but two separate occasions when he broke his leg changed his game. He evolved into an outstanding defensive defenseman, and as a result, we meshed well. We had full trust in each other and could reach, read each other's mind. I knew that I could take off with the puck or follow the play because Serge was going to be back to cover the zone should we lose possession. Many times he saved my bacon. Quite simply, Serge Savard is one of the most underrated players that I ever played with. When hockey fans talk about the best defenseman who ever played in that era, they always mention Bobby Orr or Brad Park. But if you look back, Serge should be right there with them. Sarge was an imposing figure, but his game was more cerebral and he controlled the pace of play. So I want to ask you, uh, building on Larry's words there, um, how did your game change with with the broken leg? Um, I mean, wh- how would you describe yourself before the broken leg and then after? Well, uh, I, I guess I guess it's true that I became a more defensive defenseman. I didn't take any chances. At, well, I did. I didn't take as many chances. But whether it's because I broke my legs or because the, you, you had Guy Lapointe and Larry Robinson coming on the team, and they were great offensive defensemen. Uh, offensive defensemen. So uh, I, I guess it's just the way it happened. And uh, I remember telling Larry, uh, don't you worry, uh, I'm going to be back there. So 
it, it worked perfectly between us and uh, and Larry was uh, you know was young and uh, I was not old but but Larry was was <laughs> a youngsters and he was full of pep and he was a great skater and a great rusher and uh, he uh, he was a power play player so it, it really uh, I, I what he said he, it's a great compliment to me but it's the same thing for me uh, you know, it was refreshing when he arrived on the team and and to play with him and and uh, we complete each other so well and and Larry is such a great person and and he was my roommate and 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 we became really good friends. And, and you gave him the name Big Bird. I I, I think he had that name when he arrived with Montreal. I, I don't think it's me. Everybody called him Big Bird, and he had that name when he arrived with, with us. He In his book, I think he mentions you, but I, I'm just going to read one little tiny uh, section, uh, continuing with what he said and ask you one more question before Nate asks you a question here. And that is, um, he says, We knew him as the senator and as Sarge, and when he spoke, we all listened. He didn't talk often, but when he did, his presence uh, commanded us to take notice. Sarge had a lot of business dealings outside of hockey. We were roommates and defense partners, but we didn't have anything in common outside the rink, yet we had great admiration for each other. I never got to know Sarge well, but if I asked him about legal matters, including contracts, he always provided sage counsel. So I want to ask you, um, if we travel back in time and, and look at your father's butter factory, is that how you developed this this uh, business sense that then translated over into hockey where while you were playing you're helping your teammates out with business matters well I, I i think i think i got that from my father working with him and uh, i always uh, i always want to do i want i always want to be uh, in business and uh, and at the beginning of my career in with the montreal canadians uh, i fall in love with real estate and uh, and i start to 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 buy real estates uh, at a lower level, you know, like uh, duplex, triplex, and uh, eight, eight, eight apartment building, and uh, and I really love doing that, and uh, probably got that 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 from my father. But in our days, you know, those guys were asking me a lot of questions. I was a little bit older, and. And I was in business a little bit, and and nobody really had an agent in those days, and we didn't have much control of our salary. And uh, they would, like Sam Pollock, would sign maybe uh, ten guys the same day in the summer. When you decide to sign the players, he would sign the whole team, and and in a couple days, we didn't have much to say. That's why a guy like Larry sometimes would. Asked me a, qu- a couple of questions about uh, about contract. Uh, what should I ask? What the, what should I do? But we uh, we didn't have much choice, though. Yeah, I'm mean, kind of interested. How did that those that time uh, inform what you brought to the table when you were on the other side as you know general manager in that same desk that you know Sam Pollock had occupied so well? Well, uh, in uh, in my time, you know, a guy like me and and uh, Guy Lapointe and uh, and Jacques Lemaire, we weren't draft. There was no draft at that time, and it was only sport, sport, uh, sponsorship team. 
like everybody that was playing with the junior Canadians, we belong to the Montreal Canadiens and and in Toronto, everybody that played for the Marlies, the Ron Ellis of this world, belongs to the Maple Leafs. That's the way it works in those days. And uh, when I became a manager, uh, it was a very, very different time. But uh, I, I think it's a, it, the manager was the player because I, I managed as a player. I was thinking as a player. And that's really what saved me. And uh, and uh, I, I think the, the the players believe in me, and they had a lot of respect in me, and and uh, and I trusted them. And we had a lot of success. And uh, when when uh, my you know we were in Montreal, we we were brought in with the guy like Billavo, and before Billavo was the Richard with the thread tradition and a lot of discipline and uh, and we continue uh, and and on our teams teams was always first um, and the day you forget that you cannot win um, that's one thing that I work really hard uh, even the top player of the team even the 50 goal scorer the team has to be first and the day you forget that you cannot win indeed and just to relate i made this connection a couple of days ago my parents got married in the summer of 1973 you know shortly after i think you had won your i think fourth stanley cup and my dad at that time had a role if, the, if he didn't watch the playoffs once montreal if montreal was out so and my mother wanted would want to watch the playoffs and again i don't think that and it was a couple of years before the habs won again I always thought that was kind of funny, but uh, now why is this a, a good time for readers to learn about, you know, why the Canadians were so successful, it, particularly in the 1970s when you, you know the draft was coming in and the and the hockey industry was you know changing rapidly. Well, you know what you know we won we won six cups in the 70s and, and four in a row. And one year we lost eight games, and the following year we lost ten, and the following year we lost twelve. So we had a really, really good team. And when you have guy like Robinson and, and Lapointe coming on our team, and and what really made a big change, we had a great team, and then we had the first pick overall, and we got Guy Lafleur. Uh, and as you know, Guy Lafleur dominated the National Hockey League for about eight years, and and really he was really the best player of the league for eight years. That that uh, when you have him on the right side and uh, on the left side, you get a guy like Steve Shaw that could score 60 goals. I think he scored 62 one year, and Jacques Lemaire 40 at center. That was the first line, and and you had the Mahavlich on the second line. That, that tells you what kind of a machine we had. <laughs> and those were obviously, you know, really, you know, interesting times in, in Quebec. I remember Dick Irvin relating in one of his books how when there were, you were playing, you know, on, and so was Lafleur and, and others and for Canada in the 76 Canada Cup. And I think some people in the media maybe started up a thing. Well, why, is, why isn't there a team Quebec? How, how you know, you must have felt like you, got, you guys were being put on a spot and had to pick your words pretty carefully when that topic came up. Well, uh, I uh, never paid attention to that. 
um, I'm, uh, I'm a Canadian first, and I, I I play for my country in 1972. I'm very proud to. And I play for Team Canada 76, and uh, for me, uh, for me, it's just a couple guys that mentioned that that never that did never oh, never okay. paid attention to to that. So the uh, we were as many people as many players that were from out of the province of Quebec on our team and and we were all friends and and we worked very very well together and uh, and some 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 people were were didn't understand that we could get along very well together and uh and and we did and that that's uh, i think that team, Canada '72, uh, did a lot for this country, and uh, and I, I was. It's one of the highlights of my career, and uh, and as we speak, we, uh, we we're having meetings uh, every week, and me and a group, and with Ken Dryden, and we're preparing for the festivities for in 2022 it's going to be 50 years in two years time goes fast <laughs> i'm getting some chill bumps just hearing you describe that um serge i'm gonna st- just stick with the topic of quebec here because i find it very interesting and i'm just again all my questions involve reading reading parts of, of books so i hope you don't mind but this is from your book and it's it's right after you were hired as gm in 1993 and it says Later that day, Serge received journalist Réjean Tremblay in his new quarters on the second floor of the Forum. Uh, And there's a quote. There was a time when no one would have dared to imagine a francophone in this office, he reminded him. It was unthinkable, but times have changed. We've practically abandoned the classics training that used to prepare our elite to be lawyers, notaries, and politicians. We sit on boards of directors, we learn, we make our mark. I certainly don't have any complexes. I don't feel inferior to anyone. I feel prepared and ready. And I want to ask you about about how that quote, you know, set the standard for the way you built the team forward. Well, uh, it, it's true. When you know, when I when I was a player, I I, I never thought that I I could be in that job. It, it looks like it was not for us to be in that job. And uh, two weeks after my season in. Uh, in Winnipeg, I was offered that job, so it, it came overnight because I, I, I never thought uh, that I would that uh, I would be in hockey after my career. And all of a sudden, uh, after two weeks after the season, I'm the new general manager in Montreal. And from then, from there, I I, uh, I, I want the team to be like. The team was in this in the sixty in the seventies and 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 I I, I draft a, a lot of local guys and uh, it, it I was pretty unhappy in eighty one eighty two eighty three when when you you get beat in the playoffs and the next day you know ninety percent of the teams are gone in Moscow and Sweden or wherever they live and and then have any local guys and and, uh, and and 16 years in Montreal you know I was on the 8th Stanley Cup and every year we lost every year we lost all summer people were asking what happened what happened how come you didn't win this year we had to pay this price and I did want to have a team 
where most of the players would spend their summer in Montreal. That's the, the it has nothing to do uh, being French or English. And I draft Momesso, he was uh, he's an Italian, and he, but he was a local guy. And uh, and I and I'm pretty sure it 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 pays off. It pays off for our team because we won in 12 years. I won two Stanley Cup as a general manager. Also, we had Quebec City, and Quebec City was becoming a very popular team in the province. Uh, and and I said, I, I we don't want Quebec to become. You know the favorite team of the province. The, the favorite team of the province is the Montreal Canadiens, and I want to make sure that the Montreal Canadiens we will be in the future the team of the people. And that that's made me draft more local guy. It, it, it doesn't mean to draft bad guys. You know, get Patrick Roy in the <laughs> third round, and and but but that was. By drafting in the in the Quebec League, it was a big advantage for me because the 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 all the scouts and the other teams they rated the the Quebec League uh, a lower caliber than the Western Hockey League and the Ontario League, so that was a big advantage for me. Uh, a guy like Claude Lemieux and Stéphane Richer, which I got both of them in the second round, those guys. If those guys would have played for the Toronto Marlies, they would be they would have been in the first round. Wow. Um, I want to ask you too as well. Um, how I mean, since you left, uh, you know, departed uh, or I should say separated with the Canadians in '95 as GM. How how have you seen the the province's relationship with the team evolve and change? I mean, you know, we all know about the romance of the '50s and the '60s and the '70s, and obviously the cups in '86 and '93. But how have things changed? Um, have you? Have, have, well, have, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I I, I think the. Uh, People are uh, not that big given up, but, but but the standard uh, is so low now. Uh, I just told you a few minutes ago, people were asking us all summer when we got beat in the playoff, what happened? How come? And when the season starts, every time they were asking us, are, are you going to win the Stanley Cup this year? That was, a, that was the question. Now the question is, are you going to make the playoff? It's, it's you lower the bar. Are you gonna make from? Are you gonna win the Stanley Cup? And now, now if you make the playoff, you have a good season. Uh, and uh, and Montreal made the playoff because because of COVID, <laughs> and 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 they won one round, and everybody's high now. Montreal is a good team. We got good young players and. Uh, Ninety percent of the of the the population is convinced that Montreal have uh, have a good team because of the marketing, the marketing which didn't exist in our days. The marketing today, as soon as the season is over, when you have a bad season, you start they start to talk about their kids. They have the good players, good young players, but the three or four young players that Montreal has, everybody everybody has three, four good young players in the league. So. It's it's a it's a different time. It's a, it's a different time. Very different time. 
Yeah, and, and speaking of how it was different when you were the general manager, I, I was really interested how you said having an NHL team in Quebec City and, you know, having them, you know, dr- trying to draft, you know, Quebec players that really, really made the Canadians organization fo- focus that much harder when you were GM. Yeah, it, 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 made, me, it made me a better GM. I worked harder uh, and uh, I, 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 I want to make sure uh, I, I have the team to beat them. I have the team to beat them. And how intense were were the uh, was that rivalry at, at its peak? Like it, I so almost got the impression from the book that maybe sometimes it got a little carried carried away uh, with between the Canadians oh, was and crazy. Nordics. I, I, that that's one that's one thing I uh, I did not like. Uh, I, I I like a good good rivalry, but but that uh, this one was so intense. And when I became manager, I, I couldn't watch a game in the stands and the, or in the private box. And the, the private box was almost almost in the stands. And I was walking down and people would, you know, it, it was bad. It was bad. I had people spitting in my back. And it was, I know it's not everybody, but that was bad. That, that, that has no place in hockey. Uh, I, let, let... Sorry, um, I want to ask you. Let's move ahead um, to uh, 1995, and um, you know, as Nate pointed out, my co-host here, we could have a book on that in itself. That year, there was so much going on with the Canadians missing the playoffs for the first time in a long time, the referendum, the final season at the Forum, and the Wa trade. I want to ask you about that, uh, handling the stress of that time. If you could just describe to us in your own words, you know, this, there's a new stadium about to be open. What was what was it like to be Serge Savard in 1995? Well, um, I was very, very confident. Uh, uh, you know, I, w- I, I was fired after four games into the season, and uh, that that's one thing that I did not understand, and I still don't understand. Uh, I, I had changed the team, and we didn't make the playoff one year when the, when the playoff when the seasons was shortened by by a lockout and uh, a work stoppage, and that year, and uh, and the following year, I had a very very different team. We made a lot of changes, and I went to see my boss, and I I wrote that in the book about a week or ten days before the season, and I and I told him I. I feel I have uh, the team to go to the Stanley Cup, and um, and he agreed with me. And we had a bad start that year, and uh, I was fired after four games. But uh, that's the way it is. And that's how the book. And, and in those days, in '95, you know, I, I was uh, I, I'm the one that that design the our dressing room in the new building and I give IDs to 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 the architect uh, the, the way I wanted the dressing room and and uh, and I, I I was not there when they when they moved from the forum to the new building um, that was that that I uh, that was that that hit me pretty hard <laughs> pretty yeah. hard yeah, you know, and then that's exactly exactly it. And I just want to clarify, yes, obviously the WA trade wasn't under your watch. You had been dismissed before that. But yeah, that that actually leads me to my next question. And I, you know, I'm the I'm a guy who will 
go to YouTube and watch the closing of the forum on a Saturday night because I, you know, I get that that type of stuff interests me. And yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you. Uh, I have several questions, but I mean, le yeah, leaving the forum must have been painful as it is. But then to to have it, you know, I'm sure you would. I mean, would you have preferred if they waited till? You got into the new building, or was it just a case where they felt they had to make that move and it didn't well, matter? Well, uh, they felt they had to make that move, but uh, it was pretty hard for me to see on television when they made the move, uh, every uh, the management and the players in, in a convertible car, and I, when I see Rajaul and and Mario Trabli in a convertible car carrying the... Uh, the torch and <laughs> to bring it in the new building you know it was, for me i spent 33 years in the organization i won two stanley cup as a manager and uh, i was looking forward to that and uh, but that was a, that was a tough time it was tough to watch if you know because we're on i'm going to just ask you because in the book uh it does say you know you knew every inch of that building the forum so i want to I want to ask you, if I was just to ask you to describe the forum, what it meant to you in a word, what would you say? Well, it's, uh, it's heaven. It's, uh, it was the best building in the league. Um, everybody, if you ask, uh, if you, in those days, they were asking players, what's the best place uh, to play a game? Nine out of ten was the Montreal Forum. Where's the best ice in the league? It was the Montreal Forum. Uh, Montreal Forum, that was the shrine. And uh, I, I just loved the place. I played there all my life. I played junior B there, junior A, and, and with the Canadian. I always played in that building. And um, that was amazing. And uh, I don't know if it, we, we try at that time uh, every way to to build a new building where it is where the, the old forum is and uh, we would have to play a full season in another arena and they can do that I have to ask you and I asked Ken Dryden this once when they revealed his postage stamp at the Hockey Hall of Fame and I loved his answer I'll tell you what it is after I ask you the question and the Canadians I think in all of sport, and I don't follow too much of too much European sport and soccer. I know it sort of, but in North American sport, there I don't think there is a team in any league that does ceremony like the Montreal Canadiens. So, what makes them? I mean, you've had your jersey retired. You've been there when others have been retired. Um, what makes the Montreal Canadiens masters at ceremony? Well, I. You know, we all our life, we said, it's your team. And, and you know, and when I, when I was a manager, we told the people that too. It's your team. It's your team. So people, people believed that was their team. And, and, and we, we, we did, we honor a lot of people. And, and when I became manager and then Ronald Curry became the, the, uh, the, the, the president of the team, we started to retire Jersey, a lot of, a lot of Jersey from great players when retired, we retired, uh, Jacques Plante, we, you know, we retired a lot of, uh, the, uh, good, 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 good players. It was only a few sweaters 
retired in the Montreal Forum. So, and we brought back the old timers. We brought back the old timers in the building. And for us, the past, very, very, very important. Yeah, how special was it that you to be, you know, around in, I think in 1985, the team had its 75th anniversary, and I can still remember, I think, Aurel Joliet from the 20s coming out, yeah. the huge roar in the forum. What was it like organizing that event? That was a, that was a great night, and geez, uh, I was afraid that was in the, the, the my, my box upstairs when Joliet jumped on, uh, and he, he fell down. I don't know if you remember that night, or you watch it, but uh, they, they put him on skates. We took a big chance, but uh, that was, what a night, what a night. You get Rocket Richard, you get Belleville, and you get Doug RV, all those guys on the ice, and the great players on the ice. That was, people love, people love those things. And, uh, and I remember one night we introduced Rocket Richard, and, and they, they gave him, a, I think, a 12-minute ovation. It was a, you know, we needed the announcer to stop the people, <laughs> and uh, that—that's you know, the, it, it's their team, and I don't know what Dryden told you, but it's—it's—it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's their team. We've kept telling them that's your team. Uh, uh, Dryden, uh, I said, what makes what makes you guys so good at ceremony? He said, he paused. He said, practice. <laughs> I said, you know, I guess that's true when you have that much you know that much history and legends and people that meant so much to the core of that you know that province and then and the country it's you know it it shows and and i will just say um i for those out there that haven't watched the rocket richard uh reception that he received at the closing of the forum i mean we live in a in a time and 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 have for a long time now where things are kind of forced the audience you know the the jumbotron will tell you when to clap uh, we're very programmed. That was, I always say, it would have been amazing to go to the first encore in the history of the world. I don't know, some Beethoven symphony where no one, no one was told, "Hey, let's clap until this guy, you know, can't take it anymore." No, and literally, no, you know, go ahead. You know what? What's really impressed me too. It's ninety-five percent of the people that were present there did not see Marcus Richard play. You know, right. and they applaud for twelve minutes. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's it's our past. It's our past. And they were told the stories, and the, it, it's our past. And uh, you know, I, I was amazed that night. I said, "Geez, look at this!" And and maybe if just a few people saw him play. Yeah, it, it it was the most authentic thing I think I've ever seen in sports. Literally, the most authentic thing I've ever seen. I encourage everyone to go to YouTube, and hopefully they don't take that video down. But go watch that. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, and, yeah, and, that, and the rocket was to me. And he, he, while you were GM, sometimes uh, he he wasn't shy about his his opinions of some of the moves you made. I guess, eh? Well, was that? I didn't hear. I'm sorry. I didn't well, hear the last question. Oh, I was asking. Uh, when you, now the rock uh, rocket Richard wrote a you know he had a sports column, and I guess sometimes you know he he was sometimes. Times uh, share his opinion of what what he thought about the you know you know draft picks or trades that were being made while you were oh yeah <laughs> yeah well uh, the rocket we became real friend at the end I'll tell you the story after but it, it's when I draft Peter Sabota I draft him uh, I think it was fourth overall 
and and Rocket was against the European players. Rocket always wrote, "Those guys come here and they steal our jobs. We don't need those guys." That was his comments. He didn't want the European to come in the league, and he blasted me when I draft Peter Sabuda uh, fourth overall. And my answer was, I didn't mention his name. My answer was, well, I know I know some people would prefer that he, that he plays in Quebec City, and. I, just after I said that, I said, holy, I just made a mistake. I should never say that. And the Rocket didn't speak to me for about six, seven years. <laughs> he wouldn't shake in with me. I was in the press conference at, once at the forum. I was right beside him, and I tanned my hand to shake hands with him. He turned around. <laughs> he, wouldn't, he wouldn't shake in with him. And then later on, Later on, when the he start they start the the Rocket Richard Foundation and they 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 mentioned my name to him to be president. He say yes, so I became president of the Rocket Richard Foundation, and we became really close friends till he passed away. So I was happy that I got back to him, but. The, I felt so bad when he turned around and didn't speak with him, but I told you exactly why. Well, hockey hockey players, athletes are always, their competitive streak lasts long after they play, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I, uh, I want to ask you about uh, Limage, which I believe you bought ad space in, a, in that kind of uh, publication, and you wrote a sports column. Uh, I think that was obviously when you were playing. So I want to ask you, I mean, now, you know, an athlete, you know, Brendan Gallagher can go to Twitter or Instagram, but I'm imagining that was kind of unique at the time. You got to uh, control your own message uh, well before social media. Yeah, that was a weekly media, and uh, I did, uh, you know, we we started that, was a new format, and and, I learned a lot, and I really enjoyed doing that. I did that for two, three years, three years, and uh, then I sold the paper to my competitor because I, uh, we hit the recession mm. in, in in the eighties, nineteen eighties, and it was really tough in that business. But I learned a lot. I, I, uh, owning a uh, you know a weekly paper. You have to know, uh, I had maybe 15 municipalities in the riding and uh, that I was covering. You got to know every politician, you got to know every uh, big store, you got to know the president of Steinberg at that time, the president of Jean Coutu, and and I learned a lot, and I met a lot of good people, and and even if, and I did not lose money because I I got a pretty good price when I sold, and uh, for me, it was a very, very good experience. I, I want to ask you, just going, uh, I mean, in the few questions we have left, I just want to backtrack uh, uh, on when you talked about uh, the, you know, drafting Peter Svoboda. And uh, it's a great story, by the way, in the book, uh, for those that read it, uh, check out that story. It, it's uh, very interesting how they kind of snuck him in the back door of the forum um, uh, for the draft. But I want to ask you about you know playing the Soviets and and there's a lot in this book about what you value in hockey and you didn't like the you know the way the league was turning out with the Broad Street Bullies but you know how did you feel did you feel a kinship like a connection did the Canadians and yourself feel a connection with the Soviets you know in the in terms of the way the game was played 
Yes, because we, you know, like in the 70s, uh, our, our, our hockey became pretty violent. And, and, uh, and the only reason for that, I think I explained in my book, it's uh, we expand too quickly and we didn't have enough good players. So, so the, 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 uh, the executive of the league, they kept fighting in the league and they kept saying fighting is part of the game and it took them years and years to change. It took them years to, 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 to paralyze the aggressor, uh, before, like in the 70s, like we play Philadelphia, there will be a brawl every game. They would, uh, you know, like uh, Schultz will jump on you, you defend yourself, you both got five minutes. So they weren't penalized to do those things. And it took years and years and years, and I, and, and I never liked that in my life. And, and I fought all my life to ban fighting in hockey, and uh, it's coming slowly. It's coming slowly, but I don't think the league believe into that. They, they, they want to keep that. They want to still keep it. Uh, and, and for that reason, uh, our style was more like the Red Army style that we, we, we played. We, we played Russia in 72, but after that, we played a game on the 31st of December. And, and the one game we, we played against them, it finished 3-3, I think it's in 75. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and a, few, a week later, they played in Philadelphia. They had to stop the game. If you, I don't yep. know if you remember that time. Yep. They had to stop the game. But history today remember that game, the 3-3 game at the Forum. Right. They remember that was one of the best games ever played in the Forum. And... and and I always thought that was the future of hockey. And 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 '72 changed changed hockey around. And uh, we won the last minute of the game, but of the uh, the eight game. But don't ever forget that we won the last three games yeah. in <laughs> Moscow on the big surface. And and, uh, and, and yeah. that series changed hockey, and we start to look at things differently after that. And one of the best guys for that was Scotty Bowman. And when we came back in 72, Scotty was one of the first one to look at how can we make changes? How can we practice differently? Uh, you know, and uh, they, they came, they came in, in Canada, they say we want to learn, but uh, they, they, we, we learned a lot from them too. Yeah, and of course, uh, your teammate Scott uh, Ken Dryden has written a, a really good book with Scotty Bowman. I wanted to mention quickly for our listeners that 1984 draft, obviously Mario Lemieux is the first pick, but I just did a quick search. 18 players taken that year played 1,000 games in the NHL, and Serge, three of them were, were your draft picks. Uh, Peter Svoboda, uh, I believe uh, Patrick Waugh, and Shane Corson, I think, was that year, too. Shane Corson, yeah. Shane Corson. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, we're this far I in. Had, you know, no. you know, I had, I, I, it's in my book, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that. I became GM in 83. I won the cup in 86. I had nine players from my first two drafts on that team, including free agent that I signed after the draft, like uh, Brian Scoodland, Mike Lawler. Those two guys weren't draft amongst the 12 rounds, and I signed them after the draft 
uh, as free agent. But I have nine of them on my team. That's, that's that's pretty good because you know I say twelve you know now there's seven only se- seven rounds so I mean teams got a lot they got to uh, you know pick dip into the draft pool a lot more back then now we're this far in we have not really asked about Philippe Cantin you know your your partner on this book I understand the two of you spent more than a hundred fifteen hours together working on this off oh, uh, at least <laughs> <laughs> at least. Uh, uh, you know, twice a week, uh, twice a week. Uh, over sometimes we were on on FaceTime. I, we were not always together. Sometimes on FaceTime, I was here and helped and ad for a while. And and twice a week, we would go from nine to twelve, three hours in a row. And uh, and uh, he's a, he, you know he's he's a he's a very 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 good writer and. Everything is double check. Everything is double check. I was at the end. I was tired of it. And he was, <laughs> he was checking everything. And I can guarantee you, nobody, nobody yet, have come to me and say you don't have it right. That's not true. What you said. What you said. Nobody. Nobody ever said anything to me, because <laughs> no. everything there is the fact. Now we started off with some golf, and we've been on hockey, but it it is the football season, and you are a Green Bay Packers fan. What is the story behind that? How you chose the Packers as your favorite team? How did that relate to maybe who the people around you at well, that time were cheering it's, for? Um, it's funny because in my book, I had uh, I, I did uh, an interview on television for uh, on the Green Bay Packers fans club. <laughs> they called me a couple of weeks ago because they found that out that I was a Green Bay Packers fan. It started in 1966, Super Bowl one. In 1966, my first year pro. Uh, that's the year before the expansion, and I played a couple games before when they had six teams. But the year of the expansion, Montreal sent all their young players in Houston, Texas and that was the Central League because they want to keep all the older guys for the expansion draft, the Jaguita, Button and all those guys. They want to keep them as bait for the the expansion that was coming up, the six teams. And that year was Super Bowl one, and, and most of my, I'd, I knew football, but it was not a sports on television like it is today, but I didn't know much more. And most of the guy on the team were were Dallas fans. And uh, remind, remind, I remind you, I was in Houston then. And I I really enjoyed the dynasty of uh, of of uh, of uh, the uh, the Packers and and and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, what's his name? Uh, Lombardi. You yeah, know Vince the legend Lombardi. of Lombardi. That's 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 why uh, I, I became a, a Packers fan. And and all our career, we 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 kept the name Lombardi in, uh, alive. You know, like if the bus was at eleven <laughs> o'clock, we say be there at ten to eleven. That was Lombardi time. <laughs> Lombardi meant discipline, and that's how I became a, a fan from day one. Mr. Savard, my last question to you, uh, and this has been an excellent conversation. On the front cover, there's a picture of you holding the cup, and you're looking at the cup with, you know, starry eyes. 
and I want to know what cup was that, because you're looking at it like you'd never seen it before. <laughs> I think, I think it's the last one, seventy-nine. Ah, yeah, and it just shows how magical it is because it it might as well have been the first time you were holding it. You know, you know what I I, I knew at that time. I knew that there was it, it would have been the last one because I knew Jacques Lemaire was leaving and I knew Ken Dryden was leaving and and the, and the Montreal Canadian was not was going to be a good team but was not going to be a dominant team after 79. <laughs> Mr. Savard, thank you so much for your time today. Uh it was a true pleasure. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, merci beaucoup.